0: The church is made up of a body of sinners,
1: but that's no excuse to continue to sin against one another. Those in the body of the church still have a sin nature, and we can still sin and offend each other. Sometimes we do it unknowingly, sometimes we do it knowingly. But we're not to just shine it on, we're to confront one another. Now there's a way to confront, but we're not to just say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. It does matter. There's to be a mutual accountability in the church.
0: Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. When it comes to our shortcomings, it's easy to say, well, that's just the way I am. But according to Pastor Xavier, that's no longer a valid excuse once you've been transformed by the blood of Christ. He examines this calling and the responsibilities of a true disciple as he continues in our study series of the Gospel of Luke. Turn to chapter seventeen for today's simple
1: truths message titled "The Essential Truths
0: for Disciples." Let's listen.
1: No one can be a disciple of Jesus and do the things He requires unless they are completely dependent on Him to enable them. Being a Christian, a disciple, is synonymous. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. It's impossible. The word disciple simply means a learner, a pupil. It appears 268 times, all found in the four Gospels and in the Book of Acts. For that reason, Jesus declared in Matthew 11:18 on down, He said, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." The way a person becomes a disciple is through the offer of salvation as a person repents and they become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus enables the believer to become more like him as we are joined as an ox to a yoke that we are able to do the will of God and not our own, and we follow his direction, not our own. We do this through growth and study. Becoming transformed. This begins this lifelong transformation through growth, development, and maturity. Paul, to the Colossians and the Ephesians, he says this, that we are to put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So being Christians now, we can be what we weren't before. You cannot say you're a Christian and still be living the same way you used to. You cannot have the same values. You cannot have the same worldview. It's impossible. Otherwise, why need to be a Christian? Jesus has declared some radical things in relationship to being his disciple. Let me just mention some. In Luke 19.23, he says, You cannot live for yourself. Listen. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Being a Christian is not being religious. It's not being spiritual. It's not being one thing for a while and then switching. It's being a Christian all your life, following Jesus. Not living for yourself. You cannot have a divided heart. Jesus said in Luke nine sixty two, He says, No one having put his hand to the plow... And looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Have hearts in the world. Have hearts in Christ. And you cannot value a person, any person, more than Jesus. you got to love him first. Luke 14, 26 and 27 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Pretty shocking statements. The hate and the love does not mean literal hate towards your mother, father, and husband, and so on and so forth. But you've got to love God first, so this way you'll, know you'll be able to love your husband and wife the right way. In other words, you cannot value any person more than Jesus Christ. You must love God with all your mind, heart, and soul. And then the second follows, you love your neighbors yourself. Then you're going to love them in the right place, in the right manner. In view of all this, Jesus now teaches disciples four lessons for effective service to him in preaching the gospel here in chapter 17, 1 through 10. As we've seen, Luke couples things together with a common theme and and to give lessons, and this is no different here. Jesus teaches the disciples four lessons to be effective in service as they preach the gospel. These are the four. First, the warning against offenses, verse 1 and 2. Second, the command to forgive, verse 3 and 4. Thirdly, the need to live at our faith, five and six. And fourthly, the danger of pride in serving. It begins with the severest of all. I can't find a severe warning in the New Testament than these two verses. The warning against offenses. Look at verse one. The certainty of offenses in this world by man is declared. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. Jesus is speaking in the context of what has preceded the gospel being preached. Some say there's no connection here between what precedes and what follows, but they are absolutely wrong. The entire section, as we've noted, is one Sabbath day that began in chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 17, verse 10. All of it is one day. The Lord is preaching the gospel, and tax collectors and sinners are coming to him, and he's saving them, receiving them, and eating with them. So the Pharisees and scribes are murmuring against Jesus, Luke 15, 1 and 2, and sixteen fourteen tells us. These religious men were constantly opposing Jesus and the gospel, as we've seen, attempting to turn people away from Jesus and the kingdom of God to be saved. Yet they declared themselves to be religious and knowing God. Sometimes the greatest opposition to the gospel is from within the church itself, the liberal church, the false church. Jesus speaks now to his disciples, but again, the Pharisees are still in the background, as we've seen through this whole day. He speaks to the Pharisees, then to the disciples, then to the crowds. They're all there. Now, notice Jesus said to his disciples, there would always be people attempting to turn seekers and young believers from Christ. The affirmation is stated by the double negative, the first being, it is impossible. The phrase, it is, is in the indicative present active. It is a constant truth. It has been happening ever since Jesus came. It happened in the Old Testament, tried to take people away from Yahweh. The truth being declared as constant in the impossibility, the invisible, unallowable possibility of it not existing. The second is that no offense should come. Now, if we live in a perfect world, then there might be a possibility, but this world is tainted. It's corrupt. So the negative here, the second one, no offenses, affirms the certainty of the offenses taking place. The two negative statements give emphasis to the fact that it is impossible for offenses not to come in this fallen world full of sinful people. We offend, we trespass. We insult, we shoot our mouth, we do what we want. That sinful man, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. The phrase to come is an infinitive in the era's active tense. So they will take place. There will be no doubt. I'm sure that you can think of people and events and things that were said or done in your own lifetime as a Christian that will fit right into this very severe charge and sin against heaven and God and the gospel. The word offense, scandalum, means to the removable stick or the trigger to a trap. Maybe you, when you grew up, you were trying to catch little frogs or whatever, and you put a little box, you put a stick there, and you put a stick on it, and you go behind a bush, pull it. That's the word. You want to trap. You want to ensnare. You want to kill. The word is used frequently in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, to translate the Hebrew word to catch or to trap or to snare. Just as I said, Joshua twenty-three thirteen, Judges 2, 3 is two of the passages. But it also is used for the word stumble, Leviticus 19, 14, 1 Samuel twenty-five thirty-one. So they both go together. The two became one to mean the cause of ruin. Or to bring a person to ruin, a stumbling block. If you work in construction, you know that a trip step is anything under three inches. Because you don't see it, it's not high enough, and you trip over it. Okay? It causes you to stumble. You go flat on your face. The text communicates the act of entrapping a person in sin and causing the ruin of their soul eternally and reject the gospel of God. This is one of the severest charges and sins that people, a person can commit. Sin is too destructive and so destructive that Jesus said it would be better for you to enter into hell or into heaven maimed. If your right hand offend you, cut it off. Now, he isn't speaking literally because you've got a left hand and it'll do the same thing. But he's saying it would be better off that you would enter heaven maimed than to enter hell completely whole in body. That's how severe sin is. We, we, we sometimes forget about sin, the destructiveness, the, the ruin that it does. Notice the end of verse one and two, the certainty of judgment for the offenses is by the hand of God. The person attempting to derail one from the gospel or to tempt a young believer To get involved in sin will be under divine retribution. Listen to the words. But woe to him through whom they do come. Now, they're going to come. No one can stop them. Man is dead set to live and act and say and speak against God. And to thwart whatever they can. But woe to that man. The word but marks the sharp contrast here. The impossibility of the offense not happening, yet the personal responsibility and accountability for the offense is definitely indicated. The person is noted by God, and the person will be held responsible by God. This is God's verdict over an enemy of God, an enemy of the gospel. Therefore, they're going to be an enemy of Christians. Notice the person that dies before committing such a heinous crime, would be under a less severe divine judgment. Listen to his words. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the sea. The nature of the death is gruesome as you look at it and read it. The form of death is very graphic in picture. A millstone hung around the neck like a necklace. A huge thing. The millstone here. There's two type of millstones. Some of you were in Israel with us. There's a hand uh, hand mill that you just with your hand, small stone that you grind. And then this is a huge one that it stands vertical with a hole in the middle and a pole through. And they tie an ox and a donkey to it, so it goes around in a circle to to grind the wheat and the corn. This is the one that he's talking about. Notice the benefit is indicated by the word better. It means profitable. It'd be more advantageous if a person died, drowning in the sea, his body being unrecoverable, than to ever commit this sin. This is Jesus speaking. This type of death being preferable to severe judgment of God for the crime of tempting and corrupting a believer to sin. Here's a comparison. Then that he should offend one of these little ones. The little ones are those seeking the kingdom of God and young believers. It's not literally talking about just children, but those who are coming to God in childlike faith. The tense of the offense is expressed in the error subjunctive, a single act in the future. And there's one act at a time against the sin, against the saint, against the gospel, against God, by those who think themselves that they are God. Jesus rebuked his disciples for arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, he took a child to himself. And in Luke 9:48 he says, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, and he who is least among you shall be great. This is why God will judge Satan with the severest judgment, because he enticed the first believers to sin and ruin them. For eternity. Thank God, God made a way for repentance. There is no redemption for Satan. Gehenna was made for Satan and his angels. The entire world system and people are influenced under corruption and sin. And those who were in the world, as you and I were, we lived that way. We we, we hopefully got, none of you ever did that. If you did, you're saved. He's forgiven you. You've repented. But it's bad enough that we, we enjoy corrupting others in certain areas. Whether it be drinking, getting loaded, or sex, or whatever. We we love corrupting people. We thought it was funny. But this is severe. This is eternal. This is for the gospel. By one man's sin into the world, and death through sin, Romans 5.12 says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. 1 John 2.16. That's the gates by which everything comes in. There are always individuals that will cross this line to entice or corrupt those walking with Jesus to the ruin of their souls eternally. Otherwise, a warning would be useless. Top on the list are public school teachers, administrators, university professors who attack and destroy the faiths of believers that go to their classrooms. God has a special place for them. Secular humans, atheists, agnostics who deceive Believers to believe in the goodness of man. They mock at sin and the fact that God exists. A moralist teach there is no right or wrong, corrupting the believer away from Christ. Now, there is a choice by the person who is being deceived, but the greater judgment falls on the deceiver. And that's what the focus is on the text here. Those who convince believers that the Word of God has mistakes, it cannot be trusted, falling for the same lie as Satan told Eve. has God said, this attack is from within the church, more than outside the church today. Those that teach a post-modern Christianity, redefining Christianity, the church, and a Christian, making it more cultural and worldly, blurring the holy from the profane, secularizing the church, The Bible calls it the church of Laodicea, though it has many names throughout history, the different movements. (laughs) It's all the same. If you're still living and doing the things you used to, either you've gone back to the world or you've never been born again, one of the two. There must be a drastic change in your life to cause the believer to turn away from Jesus and to go back into the world. This is their goal. And people work hard at it. Listen to what Jesus says about such men. Matthew twenty three thirteen says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They're coming in, and they stop them through entrapping them, through enticing them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he has won... You make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself. They end up being worse than you. The warning against offenses is from turning believers away from the gospel. Second lesson he teaches them as a ministering the gospel is the command to forgive. Verse three and four. The responsibility to confront is on the innocent. Christian, the innocent party, beginning of three. Usually we say, well, you know, I didn't do nothing. Let him come to me. No, no, no. If somebody did something to you and you're aware of it, you're the innocent party, you're responsible to go. That's what the Scriptures teach. Notice the warning is to all believers, take heed to yourselves. The phrase take heed means to be aware, alert, and attentive. So we're to be... Alert of what's going on. Aware of what people are saying and doing. Not to judge them. Not to think that you're better. But to know what's happening. and How you should respond. The phrase could be reflexive. Looking back to make sure they did not entice and stumble any believer to sin themselves. But the phrase also could be reciprocal of mutual responsibility to each other. Looking out for each other. It's a transition between verse 1 and 2 and 3. Now notice the tense is the imperative present here, active. It is to be ongoing at all times. We're to be alert. We're to be watching. Those in the body of the church still have a sin nature, and we can still sin and offend each other. Sometimes we do it unknowingly. Sometimes we do it knowingly. But we're not to just shine it on. We're to confront one another. Now, there's a way to confront. We'll deal with that. But we're not to just say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. It does matter. If you don't deal with your children and just let things go, things are going to matter. If you don't deal with things with your husband and wife, things are going to matter. If you don't deal with people, things are going to matter. There's to be a mutual accountability in the church. Notice the condition is a real situation, not hypothetical. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. The sin is not always deliberate, as I said, though at times it is. It's a trespass, willful. The tensed objective; error is active. He or she has committed an offense against you. It's very, very clear. There's no question here. Now, the responsibility of the one sinned against is to approach the sinning person. We are not to ignore it again. The word brother, Adolphus, literally means born of the same womb. We're in the family of God. We're in the same church body. Even if we don't go to the same church locally, but if we're Christians, we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. The word rebuke simply means to censure, to charge someone with their failure. This is an imperative command, by the way. Not a suggestion. We're commanded. So, when somebody offends you, Does something against you. And you know it. And you don't confront them. You're disobeying the Lord. Simple. Now notice the accountability to reconcile lies on both Christians. And if we repent, forgive him. The one being confronted has the duty to acknowledge his or her sin. If he repent. This means he did acknowledge it. The condition is a reality of the goal. They were confronted and they repented. He or she repents. They changed their mind about their sin. Sometimes a person may be completely ignorant. I, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I did that. I, I didn't realize that that, please forgive me. It's settled. The error is tense indicates the, the genuine act of repentance here. There's no question about the repentance here. Now notice repentance means they acknowledge your charge. They confess their sin and ask forgiveness and abandon their sin. Not justify their sin, not excuse their sin, but owning up to their sin. I'm sorry. Nor does the one who confronted has a duty of pardoning their sinning brother or sister. Forgive him. This is an imperative command. Again, there is no option when there is genuine repentance, and there's no doubt about the repentance here. The word forgive simply means to send away, to give up the debt owed. The two are reconciled, holding nothing against each other like it never existed. There being no thoughts of revenge or getting even or being bitter. This can only be done through a release, forgiving completely, based on there's actual confession, asking of forgiveness. And you forgive, you release. The problem with our human aspect is we don't forget. So the problem is with my mind. It stirs up my heart. Your mind is like the key that you stick in your engine and you turn it over. That's the key to your evil heart. The problem is the heart. And so I got to bring my thoughts in captivity. We're going to speak about that. I got to depend on the Lord constantly.
0: Pastor Xavier Reese. And the simple truths of the accountability and goal of reconciliation commanded of the saints, seeking the will of God in resolving conflict among the body of believers. And you can hear this important message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at CalvaryChapelPasadena.com. But there's still much more to come right here next time as well. However, in the meantime, you can always pick up your own copy of this message. And the title to ask for is The Essential Truths for Disciples. It's available on CD, as usual, for only $4. Once again, you'll be asking for the message titled The Essential Truths for Disciples. Or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800- Pastor Xavier Reese says today's church needs to be reminded of its true foundation one created by God and not man-made join us right here next time for more Simple Truths Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese a daily half-hour broadcast is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California